0: Hello there. In the last episode, we had a magical experience through Yogananda when he could see his Guru appearing before him and giving him information about his late coming. And we also saw how Daijin was not able to receive the same message. Let's today start with Chapter 20. We do not visit Kashmir. Father, I want to invite master and four friends to accompany me to the Himalayan foothills during my summer vacation. May I have six railway passes to Kashmir and enough money to cover our travel expenses? As I had expected, father laughed heartily. This is the third time you have given me the same cock and bull story. Didn't you make a similar request last summer and the year before that? At the last moment, Sri Krishwarji refuses to go. It is true, Father. I don't know why my Guru will not give me his definite word about Kashmir. But I tell him that I have already secured the passes from you. Somehow, I think that this time he will consent to make the journey. Father was unconvinced at the moment, but the following day, after some good-humoured guides, he handed me six passes and a roll of ten rupee bills. I hardly think your theoretical trip needs such practical props, he remarked, but here they are. That afternoon, I exhibited my booty to Sri Yudhisthva. Though he smiled at my enthusiasm, his words were non-committal. I would like to go. We shall see. He made no comment when I asked his little hermitage disciple, Kanai, to accompany us. I also invited three other friends, Rajendra Mitra, Jotun Audi and one other boy. Our date of departure was set for the following Monday. On Saturday and Sunday, I stayed in Calcutta where marriage rites for a cousin were being celebrated at my family home. I arrived in Sarmapur with my luggage early Monday morning. Rajendra met me at the hermitage door. Master is out walking. He has refused to go. I was equally grieved and obdurate. I will not give father a third chance to ridicule my chimerical plans for Kashmir. The rest of us should go. Rajendra agreed. I left the ashram to find the servant. Kanai, I knew, would not take the trip without master and someone was needed to look after the luggage. I bethought myself of a Behari, previously a servant in my family home, who was now employed by a Samapur schoolmaster. As I walked along briskly, I met my Guru in front of the Christian church near Samapur courthouse. Where are you going? Sri face was unsmiling. Sir, I hear that you and Kanai will not take the trip we have been planning. I am seeking Bihari. You will recall that last year he was so desirous of seeing Kashmir that he even offered to serve without pay. I remember. Nevertheless, I don't think Bihari will be willing to go. I was ex- separated. He is just eagerly waiting for this opportunity. My guru silently resumed his work. I soon reached the schoolmaster's house. Bihari in the courtyard greeted me with a friendly warmth that abruptly vanished as soon as I mentioned Kashmir. With a murmured word of, of apology, the servant left me and entered his employer's house. I waited half an hour, nervously, assuring myself that Bihari's delay was being caused by preparations for his trip. Finally, I knocked at the front door. Bihari, left my backs, left by the back stairs about 30 minutes ago, a man informed me. A slight smile hovered about his lips. I departed sadly, wondering whether my invitation had been too coercive or whether Master's unseen influence were at work. Passing the Christian church again, I saw my guru walking slowly towards me. Without waiting to hear my report, he exclaimed. So, Bihari would not go. Now, what are your plans? I felt like a recalcitrant child who was determined to defy his masterful father. Sir, I am going to ask my uncle to lend me his servant. Lal Dari. See your uncle if you want to, Sri Kishwa replied with a chuckle. But I hardly think you will enjoy the visit. Apprehensive but rebellious, I left my guru and entered Samapur courthouse. My parental uncle, Sharda Ghosh, a government attorney, welcomed me affectionately. I'm leaving today with some friends for Kashmir, I told him. For years, I have been looking forward to this Himalayan trip. I am happy for you, Mukunda. Is there anything I can do to make your journey more comfortable?" These kind words gave me a lift of encouragement. Dear uncle, I said, could you possibly spare me your servant, Lal Dhani? My simple request had the effect of an earthquake. Uncle jumped so violently that his chair overturned. The papers on the desk flew in every direction and his pipe, a long coconut-stemmed hubble-bubble, fell to the floor with a great clatter. You selfish young man, he shouted, quivering with wrath. What a prosperous idea. Who will look after me? If you take my servant on one of your pleasure johns, I concealed my surprise. Reflecting that my amiable uncle's sudden change of friend was only one more enigma in a day fully devoted in, to incomprehensibility. My retreat from the courthouse office was more alacritious than dignified. I returned to the hermitage where my friends were expectantly gathered. A conviction was growing in me that some sufficient, if exceedingly recondite, mutu was behind Master's attitude. The remorse seized me for having tried to thwart my Guru's will. Mukunda, wouldn't you like to stay a while longer with me? Sri Yukteswar inquired. Rajendra and the others may go ahead now and wait for you in Calcutta. There will be plenty of time to catch the last evening train, leaving Calcutta for Kashmir. Sir, I don't care to go without you, I said mournfully. My friends paid not the slightest attention to my remark. They summoned the Hackney carriage and departed with all the luggage. Kanai and I sat quietly at our guru's feet. After half an hour of silence, Master rose and walked towards the second floor of dining balcony. Kanai, please serve Mukunda's food. His train leaves soon. Getting up from my blanket seat, I staggered suddenly with nausea and a ghastly churning sensation in my stomach. The stabbing pain was so intense that I felt I had been abruptly hurled into some violent hell. Gropping blindly towards my guru, I collapsed before him, exhibiting all symptoms of the dread Asiatic Cholera. Shri and Kanai carried me to the sitting room. I cried in agony. Master, I surrender my life to you for I believed it was indeed fast ebbing from the shores of my body. Sri Yukteswar put my head on his lap, stroking my forehead with angelic tenderness. You see, now what would have happened if you were at the station with your friends? He said. I had to look after you in this strange way because you chose to doubt my judgment about taking the trip at this particular time. I understood at last. As great masters seldom see fit to display their powers openly, a casual observer of the day's events would have considered them quite natural. My Guru's intervention had been so subtle to be detected. He had inconspicuously worked his will through Bihari and my uncle and Rajendra and the others. Probably Everyone but me had thought the situation logical and normal. As Sri Yateshwar never failed to observe his social obligations, he instructed Kanai to summon a physician and to notify my uncle. Master, I protested, only you can heal me. I am too far gone for any doctor. Child, you are protected by the divine mercy. Don't worry about the doctor. He will not find you in this state. You are already healed. With my guru's words, the excruciating suffering left me. I sat up feebly. A doctor soon arrived and examined me carefully. You appear to have passed through the worst, he said. I will take some specimens with me for laboratory tests. The following morning, the physician arrived hurriedly. I was sitting up in good spirits. Well, well, here you are, smiling and chatting as though you had you had, had no close call to, with death. He patted my hand gently. I hardly expected you to find you alive after I had discovered from the specimens that your disease was Asiatic Cholera. You're fortunate young man, to have a guru with divine healing powers. I am convinced of it. I agreed wholeheartedly. As the doctor was preparing to leave, Rajendra and Audie appeared at the door. The resentment in their faces changed into sympathy as they glanced at the physician and then at my somewhat worn countenance. We were angry when you didn't turn up as agreed at the Calcutta train. You have been sick? Yes. I could not help laughing as my friends placed the luggage at the same corner it had op- occupied yesterday. I paraphrased. There was a ship that sailed from for Spain. Before it arrived, it was back again. Master entered the room. I permitted myself a Convalence liberty and captured his hand lovingly. Guruji, I said, from my twelfth year on, I have made many unsuccessful attempts to reach the Himalayas. I am finally convinced that without your blessings and blessings, the god goddesses Parvati will not receive me. Parvati is mythologically represented as the daughter of King Himalaya, the abode of the snows, whose home is a certain peak on the Tibetan border. Astonished travellers passing below that inaccessible peak view a far vast snow formation resembling a palace with icy domes and turrets. Parvati, Kali, Durga, Uma and other goddesses or aspects of Jaganmatri, Divine Mother of the World, variously named to signalize particular functions. God or Shiva in in his para or transcendental aspect of uh, inactive in creation. His Shakti, energy, activating force, is relegated to his concerts, the productive female past that made possible the infinite unfoldments in the cosmos. Mythological tales in the Puranas give the Himalayas as the abode of Shiva. The goddess Ganga came down from the sky to be the presiding deity of the Himalayan-sourced river. The Ganges is therefore poetically said to flow from heaven to earth through the hair of Shiva, King of Yogis and the destroyer-renovator of the Trinity. Kalidasa, the Indian Shakespeare, described the Himalayas as the masked laugher of Shiva. The reader may manage to imagine the stretch of great white teeth, writes F. W. Thomas in The Legacy of India. But the full idea may still escape him, unless he has realized the figure of the grand, as it eternally enthroned in the towering mountain world, where the Ganges in her descent from heaven passes through his matted locks with the moon there crestual. In Hindu art, Shiva is often shown wearing an antelope skin of velvet blackness symbolizing the darkness and the mystery of night. The sole garment of him who is Digambara, sky-clad? Certain Shiva sects wear no clothing in honor to the Lord of the Lord who owns nothing and everything. One of the patron saints of Kashmir, the 14th century Lala Yogeshwari, supreme mistress of yoga, was a sky-clad Shiva devotee. A scandalized contemporary asked the saint. Why she observed nudity? Why not? Lala replied tartly, I see no men about. To Lala's somewhat drastic way of thinking, he who lacked God-realization did not deserve the name of man. She practiced a technique closely allied to Kriya Yoga whose liberating efficacy she celebrated in numerous quatrains. I translate one of them here. What acid of sorrow have I not drunk? Countless my rounds of birth and death. Lo, not but nectar in my cup, quaffed by the art of breath. Undergoing no mortal death, the saint dematerialized herself in fire. Later, she appeared before her grieving townspeople A living form enwrapped in golden robes, fully clad at last. So here ends chapter 20. We do not visit Kashmir. Thanks for listening.